Good morning. If you got a Bible, you can open it up to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. You also should have gotten a communion cup. If you didn't get one, we will uh, we'll get you one there at the end of service. We're going to do that. You can go ahead and set that down for now. Uh, we'll get to that at the end of, uh, end of our time today. Well, hey, if you're new around here, my name is Stephen. I'm the pastor. Thank you so much for joining us at Redemption. We are in a series right now entitled How to Create a Counterculture or 10 Steps to Create a Counterculture. And you're joining us on step four today. If you missed the first three steps, you can always go back on the podcast or online, YouTube, whatever. Uh, Find it and listen and get yourself caught up. Uh, But I'll catch you up briefly here uh, on what we're doing. We're we're doing this series because we're looking out at the world and uh, we're seeing that it is in need of a reformation. Uh, But before we look out at the world and say, it needs to change, it needs to change, it needs to change, the first three steps have been about how we need to change, about what God needs to do in us first. And so step one was this, to live a godly life. Step number two was to never stop learning. And then step number three was to exercise great personal discipline. And so we talked about those uh, three steps over the last three weeks, and we kind of created this metaphor, at least I created this last week, that if to live a godly life is the, the train, and if the fuel is to never stop learning, then exercising great personal discipline is the tracks that allows the train to move. Today, we transition into this question, who are you going to be on the train with? And then the next couple of weeks, we'll answer the question, where is the train headed and what is it going to be doing? And so that's kind of where we're, uh, where we're going in this series. We're transitioning today kind of out of the individual. Of course, there's an individual nature to all 10 of these steps, but we're kind of transitioning out to just the individual into the more relational, uh, and then we'll get into the church, and then we'll end with the corporate or the, the world. How do we take the Reformation out? And we are indeed in need of a reformation in our world, are we not? Every week, the, the fodder just like doesn't end. Like if, if you ever get to a point where you're like, Stephen, why are we talking about all of this transformation and change and reformation that is needed? Well, when there are like satanic worship concerts on live television, we're in need of a reformation, right? We haven't even had the halftime show yet, and we already know. We're in need of a reformation. Who knows what will happen tonight? Other than the Chiefs will win. We know that part, right? Amen? Amen. There cannot honestly be an Eagle fan in here, right? Oh, okay. Oh, it's okay. You're new around here. All right. (laughs) Stick around. God will get your heart. All right. Today, we're going into step four, and step four is this. To view marriage differently. To view marriage differently. Now, I could put a couple of parentheses in here, too, which would be this. View and engage in, because it doesn't do us any good to just look at something differently and then never, not act differently. Okay, so I'm kind of insinuating in that. Uh, and then I said marriage, but I could put in parentheses as well, and dating differently. View marriage differently. See, the text that we just read in Ephesians chapter 5 is a text that we look at, and uh, to the modern reader, particularly the modern female reader, uh, would hear that text and bristle. And we have to acknowledge at the beginning of our time today that most of our understanding of both marriage and dating comes from one of two places, the world or really bad biblical teaching. 
that most of our perspectives on marriage come out of one of those two sources. And today what we want to do is we want to go back to the original source on marriage. And by the way, the source on marriage is not the government and not Supreme Court cases. The source on marriage is the scriptures, okay? And so we go back to it, and we look to it to tell us, it being the scriptures, what marriage actually is and how we view it differently as followers of Christ. And so uh, this will begin, again, the transition in the, into the relational side of this. Next week, we're going to talk about the family, uh, and then after that, we'll kind of transition into the church and then into the world. As I'm talking about marriage this morning, I will say this to those of you who are unmarried, for whatever reason it might be, uh, there is obviously a lot of truth to see in this. For those who are thinking about marriage, this is what you are, are, should be wanting to enter into, okay? For those of you who marriage is still far off, uh, I think there's still uh, a lot in here this morning uh, that isn't just about marriage, but also is a picture of the gospel, and so even as we talk about this morning in marriage, for those of us who aren't or maybe never will be, uh, there's a picture of Christ in here this morning that I think you will get to see that is beautiful. So what is a Christian marriage? What is a Christian marriage? Let me give you a definition. Now, I know I could have written this definition a hundred different ways, and some of you might come afterwards, you say, well, what about this and what about that? I'm not saying that this is an exhaustive, perfect definition of marriage, but it is a good working definition for us this morning. A Christian marriage is a covenant partnership ordained by God between a man and a woman to provide sanctification enjoy, as well as an outlet for child raising. That's a Christian marriage. And we can add again a lot more to it. There's some important words in here. Covenant is an important word that we'll talk about in a second. Partnership is an important word. Ordained by God. That's why we uh, used to hear in our marital vows, right? What God has brought together, let no man separate. Uh, of course, ordained by God between a man and a woman, Right, We've already touched on that briefly this morning, that the only Christian marriage is between a man and a woman. To provide sanctification and joy, I'm using that term joy this morning to describe um, all the blessing and the goodness. I'm trying to take all of the idea of the good life, the abundance, the peace, uh, the prosperity, all of that of marriage, and I'm just kind of wrapping it up into that word joy. And then as an outlet for child raising. And as I say that this morning, I'm not trying uh, to make anyone feel inferior who is raising a child outside right now of, uh, of a, a male and female marriage. I'm not trying to make single parents feel bad or anything like that. I'm just giving a definition of what we saw Christian marriage to be in the scriptures. And what it was supposed to be. Now what we see all over in the scriptures is that they did marriage horribly in the Bible. I mean, read through Genesis, and these guys and girls were messing it up like every step of the way. And you might actually be tempted to read through the Old Testament and go, look, at none of these guys did marriage correctly. And you're right. Like, there's not really a great picture of a marriage. And guess what? Every time they did it incorrectly, you know how it turned out? Horribly. Which is God's way as the writer of the story saying, you can do it your way, but it's not going to turn out good. And that's what we see over and over in the stories of the scripture. So that is a marriage. 
Now, uh, uh, at least uh, a definition, a working definition of a marriage. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to contrast two different views of marriage. View number one is the view that I'm advocating for, uh, and that is the Christian marriage covenant. The Christian marriage covenant. And we will contrast that then with this, the worldly marriage of convenience. The Christian marriage covenant versus the worldly marriage of convenience. Or I would say this, there are times when even in Christian um, marriages, uh, and I guess I use this because both people are Christians, though I would not describe the marriage as a Christian marriage, if you're following me. That it can be a Christian worldly marriage of convenience. But the biblical perspective of marriage is that it is supposed to be a Christian marriage covenant. Now, when we look at these words in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, they're not supposed to make us bristle. They're not supposed to uh, make us scared. They're not supposed to be bad words. They're supposed to be good words, life-giving words. I've said this before, right? Um, One of my catechism sayings with Reagan is this, uh, daddy is always here too, and Reagan responds with help. And so she's always supposed to know that when daddy shows up on the scene, I'm never there to hurt you, baby. I'm there to help, right? Right? And I'm training her in that. Another, uh, I'm telling you that story because of this. Whenever we look at the word of God, we are always supposed to know that it's there to help us, not hurt us. It's there to give us life, not death. The enemy gives death. His lies and deception produce death. The scriptures bring forth life. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, when we view marriage from the worldly or the Christian uh, marriage of convenience, these words might seem harmful, hurtful, uh, they can be used uh, in bad ways, they can be used in abusive ways, and certainly they have uh, historically or throughout the years in different seasons, so they can be used for bad things, but they are not inherently bad, and they are actually inherently good because they come from God, and every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so we need to see in there, we have to view them through the right lens, and the right lens is the Christian marriage covenant. Now, what's a covenant? One author gives this definition of a covenant. A covenant is a solemn bond, sovereignly administered, with attendant blessings and curses. If you're ever wondering about the tragedy of Oberfell from seven, eight years ago now, it's because man decided that he got to institute what marriage was instead of what God is supposed to administer. It was an entire nation's way of saying, God, what you wrote and what you created doesn't matter to us anymore. We're going to do it our way. (laughs) Look what's happened over the last eight years since, right? That That was part of the tragedy. A covenant is a solemn bond, sovereignly administered. In other words, God is the one who ordains it and oversees it. Now, as God ordains it and oversees it, that doesn't mean that it is outside of the scope of our culture or or of our present reality. And so part of the solemn bond and the uh, sovereignly administration of the marriage is that in a Christian marriage, the two become one and they become one in every possible sense, financial and legal uh, uh, relationship 
negational right to the uh, to, to the the, uh, the negation of anyone else entering in, right? Of course, spiritually, right? But all of it. And so to say, well, God administers uh, marriage, yes, but He does so also within the context of the culture that we live in, and in our scope, that's you know legal and all of these other things. It says that a covenant is a solemn bond, sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. In other words, when you live up to the covenant, it's good. When you don't live up to the covenant, it's bad. There are blessings and there are curses. There is life and there is death. And marriage was to be a covenant administered by God that produced blessing. That produced blessing. But in order to receive the blessing, the first thing we got to do is we have to understand we're in a covenant, and then we have to operate within the, the framework of the covenant. Because covenants have rules, seems uh, like, like, a, like a harsh word, but uh, they have guidelines, they have instructions on this is how you live within the context of it. So what are those instructions? Well... Let's look in the text. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 operates now that Paul, he's operating under this lens. And if you're not in this lens this morning, I will love to compel you to it, right? Uh, particularly if you do follow, call yourself a follower of Christ, right? I would say you, actually, let me say it this way. Even if you don't look, if you are a follower of Christ and you don't look at marriage through this lens, it doesn't mean that this isn't the correct lens or that this is even the reality of the situation that you're in. You're just not seeing the reality. This is the reality of the structure of a Christian marriage. Here's the instructions in it. It says this, first, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice what it does not say does not say women submit to men, okay? It does not say wife submit to any man. It does not say girlfriend submit to your boyfriend. It says wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, why? Paul, can you give me more than that? Like that's an instruction, sure, but why? He does. He answers the question. He says this, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so, yes, Paul lays out the instruction, wives submit to your husbands, but then he goes on and he tells them, this is why. The reason you are supposed to do that is because the husband is the head of the wife. It doesn't say the husband ought to be or could be or should be or can earn that position. Simply just says is, is. For the husband is the head of the wife. Now, here in this part of the text, and then later near the end of the time that, or the text that we read this morning, Paul is going to appeal to two things. And he's going to appeal to those two things so that we couldn't read it 2,000 years ago, uh, 2,000 years later, and say, well, that's just cultural. He's going to appeal to these two things that, have, um, uh, that, that, that uh, transcend time and uh, that, that transcend every era. The first thing he's going to appeal to is he's going to say the relationship is similar to the relationship between Christ and the church. In other words, what Paul is doing there is this. If you want to disagree with me, then you also, Paul is saying, you have to disagree with Christ's relationship to the church. The only way to subvert what I'm saying, Paul is saying, is that you also have to subvert the 
the relationship between Christ and the church. Then, later, he's going to quote Genesis chapter 2, and he's going to say, if you want to make an argument that this is just a, uh, just a cultural reference or something just in a specific period of time, Paul's going to go all the way back to Genesis 2, and he's going to say, no, 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 this is how it has been and how it is supposed to be from the beginning. From the beginning, all the way back to when marriage was formed in the Garden of Eden. So he's going to appeal to those two things so as to set up the fact that this was not just a, a snapshot in time. But we're supposed to understand it like this. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, in order to understand Paul's statement, wives, first submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In order to do that, we have to understand the why. And the why is because the husband is the head of the wife, which means we need to stop or take a second back and go, well, then what does it mean to have headship? What does that mean? Because if that's Paul's driving reason for why, then we need to properly understand what headship is so that we can understand the application. So what is headship? Well, if you're in the Christian marriage covenant, headship means one thing. If you are in a worldly marriage of convenience, headship means something altogether different. And so let's start with the worldly marriage of convenience and the idea of headship and how it is typically portrayed. And I would say this is typically portrayed in this way, uh, either from a strict world perspective or even sometimes in, a, um, in, in poor biblical teaching. Okay, I would say both of these they, uh, misunderstand this idea of headship. Now, in, of course, in the worldly marriage of convenience... I made this joke back in the Clear Truth for Confused World series. Like, if I want to get a lot of people angry at me, all I need to do is stand in front of a group of modern women and say, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Like, that'll rally some people up, right? And, but we view marriage differently, right? That's how you create the counterculture. By the way, if some of you are going, this just sounds so opposite, Stephen, that's the whole point. What do you think we meant by counterculture? It means it's different. I've said this before too. If your non-Christian friends disagree with me but agree with you and I'm preaching scripture, you need to be careful. Okay. What is headship from either the worldly perspective, like how does the world understand it, or even poor biblical teaching, how does poor biblical teaching understand it? Uh, let me give you three. Uh, that, that headship is this, that one is inferior to the other, and so therefore the other is more important than the other. That's the first one. The second one is this, that um, each in the, in, in, in the unit, in the marital unit, that each is separate and each are solely held personally responsible for their decisions and actions. That's number two. Number three is this, that one exercises sinful or abusive control over the other, and that's allowed in the relationship, and therefore one is enslaved to the other. That is the modern understanding of what headship means, okay? Now, the easiest way for the Christian to refute this is to say that the model for how Christ loves the church and how the Father and the Son interacted is a picture for us of headship, and that's not how they interacted. 
And so we know that theologically that perspective is wrong. So what is correct? In the Christian marriage covenant, we view headship in this way, that one operates or exercises operational authority over the other, but both are equal ontologically, and yet the two become one. In other words, there is an equality in an ontological sense, but there is a difference in an operational sense. And that is different than saying one is higher or better or more important than the other. Two, this, that each is individually held responsible, yet the head is held mutually responsible. Wake up, guys. One author said it this way. A husband can no more blame his wife for their marital problems than a thief can blame his hands. Are we awake? Guys, this passage does not stop at wives submit to your husbands. In fact, Paul has three lines for the women and nine for the guys because it takes us three times as long to listen. Ladies, amen. Okay, here we go. When I throw you a bone, you got to take it, all right? Third, by the way, well, here's what I mean by that. Each person in the marital relationship is held responsible for their decisions. But guys, there's a level of authority and responsibility that rests on you. So I don't know why the marriage ended, or I don't know why it is, but before you look out, you better look in real hard, because ultimately, bro, it's on you. It's on you. Ladies, that's a sense of freedom there, by the way. Also, it's not an excuse for you to go do whatever you want. Also, let me admit this and just say this in front of everybody. There's no way that I can give every little caveat and preface and all of these things on every statement that I make today, okay? And so there needs to be a certain level of understanding of what we can accomplish in a 40-minute. Some of you are like, 40 minutes? Yeah, right, Stephen. Okay, 50-minute, all right, 50-minute <laughs> conversation, which means this, that there's more prayer and more scripture reading and more studying that we need to do, Okay? Number three, I think that's where I was at. The third thing in headship is this, that each mutually serve and love each other and are therefore free to enjoy each other. This is not about enslavement. This is about freedom. And what is this picture supposed to reveal to us? It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, is it not? Jesus is not inferior to the Father. He is submissive, though. The Father is not more important than the Son, though the Father operates as head. The Trinity exists in three distinctions, yet all are equally one. There's not control over one another. There is a beautiful picture, though, of submissive relational love within the context of the Trinity. There is no enslavement in the Trinity. There is only freedom. And that is what we are supposed to see in the Christian marriage covenant. I was having a conversation with a, a, a couple this week. In, in the context of the conversation, we got to the end of it after I had laid out the beauty of the Christian marriage covenant. And they looked at me and they said, that's just so much better than what we've been believing, isn't it? It is. And what this is supposed to be when we properly understand it is so much more beautiful than how we've been understanding it. And so we need to 
Now, how does this apply uh, to our marriage, this understanding or this proper understanding of headship? Well, it's supposed to affect everything. And so now when it says wives, or or let me um, add a little parentheses in here, like the amplified version of the text, when it says first wives, the parentheses would be this, Christian women in a Christian marriage covenant. Now, by the way, if you're in a marriage and the, uh, the, the, the husband is not a, a believer, this isn't like an opt-out, okay? Scripture elsewhere teaches us that. But women who are viewing marriage as a Christian marriage covenant, right? What? Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Okay. Now, only a heretic would say that Jesus submitting to the Father was a bad thing. Only a heretic could arrive at the conclusion then that godly submission in this context is a bad thing. Now, what does it mean and what does it not mean? Let's spend a couple of minutes there. At the end, let's start with what it does mean. At the end of this text, Paul is going to use these words when he's going to say, and wives, see to it that you respect your husband. Now, what is Paul doing there? After laying out the instruction, wives, submit to your husband, at the end of the text, what he's going to do is he's going to tell us how to go about doing it. He's going to say, ladies, wives, respect your husbands. In other words, the easiest, quickest check for you, wife, the easiest, quickest check for you to go, am I submitting in the proper way uh, uh, to the husband is to ask or to stop before you spend the money, before you say the thing, whether it's to him or it's to a group of friends or to a group of whoever, before you post it, before you whatever, is to stop for a second and ask the question, am I respecting him as to the Lord? Am I? Because if the answer is no, that's not proper submission. Am I respecting him? That's the easiest first question for you to ask, wife. And if you're looking at your marriage and you go, man, I want, I want this to get better, I want this to get better, I want this to get better, then just stop and ask the question, am I respecting him the way that he deserves? And the respect there in the way that he deserves as what was asked to the Lord. And listen, I know he ain't the Lord. Okay? Not suggesting that he is. But respect him as to the Lord, right? Are you respecting him? It's the easiest place to start in what you say and how you respond and how you're driving your agenda. Are you respecting him? It starts with that. Now let's go to the reverse for a second. What does it not mean? I do think it's important that we, in our, in our modern cultural context, to, to explain this a little bit. Godly submission does not excuse or make allowance for sinful behavior. When it says husband or wives submit to your husbands, it doesn't say wives submit to your husbands, and so now therefore the husband has carte blanche to sin against his wife. And so uh, in, in any way, abuse, uh, you can go through the list, right? Because there is a filter for how Christians uh, are to treat one another, and we don't just throw that filter out. And so uh, if two Christians are in a relationship and one of them 
sins against the other one, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to, in love, bring it before them as try to have forgiveness sought, right? And, and then hopefully what? Win your brother. And so this is not allowance for sin in any way whatsoever. And then, biblically, what happens if you take the sin, hey, you're sinning against me in this way, and, uh, and, and, the, and the husband doesn't listen? Well, then, Scripture tells us that you bring somebody else into the conversation. So then you bring a friend in. You bring an elder in. You bring that person's parent in or someone else, uh, someone of an authoritative or accountable figure in and say, listen, I feel like he's sinning against me. Obviously, you do it in respect because you want to respect him and the privacy of your marriage. But you say, he's sinning against me in this way and it needs to be corrected because it's sinful. Am I right? And you work through it that way with the intention of what? Winning your brother. And then you just carry it out. What if he doesn't listen then? Then you bring in somebody else. And you carry this out, right? Now, I'm going to stop that conversation there. I know it could go further, right? By the way, somebody said, well, what if there's abuse, physical abuse? Then you bring in the authority. This is in no way suggesting that the husband has carte blanche now to, to, to um, beat a wife, to, uh, uh, to exercise sinful behavior against his wife. There's nowhere in the scriptures where one is supposed to exercise sinful behavior without any checks and balances, okay? Here's the second thing I would say is this. It is not, by the way, also, um, let me just say this too. In any Christian relationship, what's the first line of defense in sinful behavior? Love covers a multitude of offenses. And so ladies, what are we supposed to do first? What are you, not we, <laughs> you. What are you supposed to do first? You, as much as you can, you're allowed to, you're, you're, to allow grace and love to cover over offenses, but the moment that grace and love can't cover over the offense and you're still going to harbor the bitterness or the anger or something, that's when you bring it up and you work through the biblical processes of reconciliation and forgiveness. Okay? Now, secondly, I would say this. It also doesn't invite stupidity. Men, submit is not a license for you to be a moron. It's not. Well, you have to submit. Well... If you're driving your family into ruin, if you're going to, uh, uh, if you're if you're stripping out your kids' uh, you know uh, the the very lifeblood out of them, this is not an invitation to stupidity, either. And I would say you go through the same process, ladies, as you can to bring in an extra accountable partner, all of this stuff. Because I'm using the word stupid, but you could probably call what most of that is sinful as well. And so it's not a license for that. And guys, let me just say this. It's also not encouraging a slave-like mindset. She's not your mom. She's not your mom. Now listen, it is good for spouses to serve each other, and we should serve each other. And I know that in certain households, you figure out who's doing this and who does that and all of this kind of stuff, right? But dudes, real leadership serves people, so you as a real leader serves your spouse. doesn't just sit there and say, make me a sandwich, Right? Whatever it is. Now, there might be understandings in a certain house of who does what and all of that kind of stuff, and that's fine. You figure that out in your own house, but dude, she's not your mom, okay? Okay. Now to the other side. So ladies, by the way, where does this end? Um, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So also wives should submit 
by respecting their husband's headship in everything. Does that help understand? Respect your husband's headship in everything. Out of reverence for Christ, right? Okay, now, guys, let's turn to us for a second. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now this is not just a statement that is ethereal, not tied to any practical application. Paul is saying, husbands, love your wives. Okay, help me understand how. As Christ loved the church. And so the initial uh, response there should be, well, then how did Christ love the church? Because that will then give you an indicator on how you should go about loving your wife. First, how did Christ love us? He loved us while we were still sinners. That's how he loved us. He loved us in the midst of our imperfections. He loved us when we hadn't yet arrived. Men, the call to headship is a call to love her where she is right now. Christ loved us where we were at. He still does love her where she is at. Of course, wives, this is not an excuse to keep on sinning or to reject the Holy Spirit. It is just an encouragement, guys, to go first as Christ went first to us. In my now little over six years of marriage, um, if I look back and say, what is one thing that I regret in our six years of marriage, it is this, that when Lindsay and I went through what is the most transformative period in our marriage, she went first. And it took me a while to see where I had not. And it was good for her to go first because I probably wasn't getting ready to go, right? And then she... She loved me in a way that I, pro- I should have loved her in that way first. And so, guys, I just say that to don't make my mistake. And, ladies, I would say this too. Um, where you can, you have an incredible power. You have an incredible power, ladies, to, um, to biblically operate first. And if your husband is full of the Spirit... When you are Christ to him, it will do something to him. So guys, die first. The call to headship is the call to die first. But here's the good news in the scripture, that whenever there is a call to die, it is always preceded by a resurrection. And so every call to die for the Christian, there's a life on the other side of it. There's a life on the other side of it. Paul calls this later in the text a profound mystery, and it is a profound mystery. It's a beautiful mystery, just like the gospel is. That's the first way that Christ loved the church. Here's the second way that Christ loves the church. Christ loved the church with a transforming love, a transforming love. (laughs) Uh, The other day, Reagan was brushing her teeth, and I walked in, and um, she was kind of tearing up a little bit. And, you know, Reagan's five, if you don't know. And uh, I said, baby girl, what's wrong? She said, nothing's wrong, Dad. That movie was just so beautiful. And she was talking about cars. And no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> she, was, she was talking about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a beautiful movie. 
And it was just so cute to see it move her. And, and the tears come down her eyes. Isn't that how Christ loved us? It moves us. It changes us. The love of Christ is the kind of love that just makes you different. And you can't stay the same once it happens. Husband, does your love do this for your wife? Does it change her? Is it making her more at peace? Is your love making her more lovely, more gracious and kind, more of who God made her to be? Is she flourishing under your love and care? That's how Christ loved the church. Third, Christ loves us with an intimate love. He was not far or distant, nor cold or mechanical. He was close and personal. He came from heaven to earth, and he died the death that we deserved. He knows us. He formed us. His spirit dwells within us. He knows our hurts, our concerns, our pains, and our fears. He isn't afraid of the mess, and he is not afraid to press in. It is a committed love. It is a fierce love. It is a protecting love. It is a powerful, all-consuming, nothing-will-get-in-the-way-of-it type of love. Husband, do you love her like that? Do you love her with a jealous love? A protective love? An intimate love? A type of love that draws her in? Remember all those stories in the Bible when Jesus ran around looking at people and said, Submit! Follow me! You don't. Why? Because they saw the grace in his eyes. And it's like they melted in front of him. Do you love her like that? That is the kind of love that Paul was saying when he said, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives like that. See, there's two pictures here, friends. One is the, the, the worldly marriage of convenience or the Christian worldly marriage of convenience. And it's based on all of these other things. It's based on sex. It's based on a good time. It's based on some mutually beneficial financial advantages. It's based on finding a friend, all of these types of things. And here's typically how worldly marriage of conveniences start out. They start out hot. They start out intense. They start out great. And then over time, they fade away. Maybe you've seen this where intimacy before the marriage or in the initial stage, it seems so strong. Ladies, he's opening up and he's sharing things inside and you're so drawn that you found a guy who's finally willing to talk a little bit and then marriage happens and where to go? You know why that happens? Because uh, men are innately wired by God to know how to develop a relationship with a woman and to draw her in. We've been wired by God for that. 
But then, on the other side of marriage, what the enemy loves to do is to, uh, uh, then is to get in and to stop that, to, to make the guy think, okay, well, now I got her, right? Or the intimacy, this is even further, okay? The inter- intimacy was required at first to obtain sex, and now it's no longer required, so I'll just stop with that. And then what happens in this? The friendship gets boring, right? The intimacy stops, right? You go, man, I thought I married a guy who knew how to share his feelings, right? Uh, And the marriage of convenience all of a sudden ends with that. And what happens? Oftentimes, ends in divorce or people dying unhappy. And there you have the worldly marriage of convenience or oftentimes the Christian marriage of convenience. But what of the other way? Oh, the Christian marriage covenant is so much different. It's so much different. It has an intensity and its flair and its desire, and that is not bad. And those of you who are single, don't listen to any of this modern Christian stuff that's like, you're not supposed to be attracted to your wife. Yeah, you are. It's fine. Romance is fine. It's good. It's biblical. All of these types of things. But it is grounded in something so much deeper. Often, and in conversations with younger couples dating or about to get married, they will ask me, so why Lindsay? And beyond all of the obvious things that make her so great, I would say, I always say this. Because in the end, I just trust her character. And I know that what life brings, the Holy Spirit will always break in. And I didn't know this at the time, but I do now, that God gives us the partner specific to the deaths that we need to die. Oh, and I know I have needed to die a thousand deaths and have a thousand deaths more to die to love her the way that Christ loved the church. But guys, the call to all of us is to keep dying them to our last day to imitate Christ and how he loved us. See, in the Christian marriage covenant, the fire starts small. But as the two become one, and as each die the deaths that they need to die, the fire begins to grow. And the fire begins to grow. It almost becomes uh, like an uncontrollable fire. And it is the kind that then warms a whole house. Have you seen this? The strength of a Christian marriage covenant that like warms everything that is around it, that provides protection to kids, that affects generations. For as long as I live, I will never forget watching my grandparents dance at their 50th anniversary. It was the kind of fire of a Christian marriage covenant that the warmth of it like spread out to everybody else in the room. Why is divorce uh, uh, so condemned in the scripture? Why does God warn us against it so much? Because it's like the fire is raging and it's providing this warmth and then it's just like a cold bucket of water. But the Christian marriage covenant, what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to be like a, like a fire that then brings warmth to an entire house and to generations living off of its energy. And so friends, I would say this. Before you and I look out at the world and say, it doesn't understand marriage. 
that is a, a, an abomination, all of these other things, first look inside your own and make sure that the fire is growing. Because God designed his world to be changed. A couple's in a Christian marriage covenant. We're operating in this way. So what do you need to do today? First, friend, you have to feel that love from Christ. That fire has to burn. Do you see how he loved you in your imperfections? Do you see how he loved you in a way that changes you? Do you see that he died the death and he died it first? And he draws us in through it. So the first thing we all have to do is we have to look inside and we have to let the fire of the gospel burn inside of us again. Would you take out your communion cup? Go ahead and open it up. Second, what needs to happen this is to every one of us, single, married, whatever. Second thing you need to do is we need to humble ourselves. If we're married, we need to communicate with our spouse. We need to seek forgiveness where it's needed. We need to die to our selfishness and we need to let the fire begin to burn again. By the way, those who are single, I know I've sat in your seat. Sat in your seat for 13 years as an adult. To you, I would say, keep praying. Keep walking in integrity. And here's the advantage of staying single longer. God gets to change you more and more before you meet him or her. I thank God every day that Lindsay did not meet 27-year-old Stephen. I don't know if we'd be here today. But I prayed every day for 12 years. Send me the right woman at the right time. And he did. Pray that prayer. And keep looking in the mirror and letting God Keep changing what he wants to change and trust that he knows what is best. We're going to end with communion today. Married couples, I would encourage you to take it together. Husband, pray for your wife right here right now. Everyone else, you may partake on your own. Let's take a moment and do so.
Heavenly Father, thank you for modeling to us what this is. Christ, thank you that you would submit to the Father so that we might be saved. And thank you for loving us with such an infectious love so we can now pour it out. And Father, I pray for every marriage in this room. May your words today bring life and hope. Father, I pray for every wife praying for an unbelieving husband. Bring forth that salvation and give her all the grace that she needs. Father, we pray that we would hear stories of your redemption power working its way through marriages from your word this morning. Father, I pray for every single person in here. Lord, I pray that they would walk in purity and integrity. And Father, I pray that you would match the desires of their heart that you would pour out that which is good, your good gift. Father, we trust your timing. We do. But what we're allowed to pray, we do. Bring it quickly. And bless those in our congregation who desire that. And Father, I pray that as we congregate together as a church family, as we have friendships and life groups and meet on Sundays and all of these things, that marriage would be esteemed, that we would view it correctly, and that we would experience all of the blessings of the covenant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.